This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a really great show today, but before we get into the substance of the show, I just want to reassure our viewers and listeners that you and I do exist. Um, just within the last 24 hours, discredited and known kind of terrorist uh, Smotrich, Israeli uh, member of the Knesset said, and this is in a speech in France, Palestinians do not exist. Palestine is a fiction. And basically, this is the same person that called for the, the, the village of Hawara in Palestine to be wiped off the face of the earth. And he's also the person that was granted a visa to the United States, despite these things. So I just want to assure everybody, you and I are actually here. We actually do exist. And uh, depending on how much time we have today, we may go on to that. But we have a great show today, Jamal. We, we're going to talk about some things that are going to make pro-Israel groups very unhappy. A new Gallup poll has reported that Democrats' sympathies in the Middle East have shifted rather dramatically to favoring Palestinians over pro-Israeli uh, forces and pro-Israeli voices. So this is kind of a big deal. Uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk also about the International Criminal Court have issued arrest warrants for Vladimir Putin and uh, one of his ministers who's responsible for basically taking Ukrainian children and basically stealing them, if you will, kidnapping them and taking them and trying to re-educate them in Russia. It just the irony on the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq that Vladimir Putin justifiably should be called before the ICC. But George W. Bush walks freely. We have all the Israeli members of the Knesset, including Smotrich, who call for ethnic cleansing of Palestinians who walk free. But before we get to all of those things, including the 20-year uh, anniversary of the Iraq invasion, Jamal, we're going to watch an interview that you did with James North. Um, James North is an independent writer and editor in Mondowis, and he wrote an article recently called, and I read the article. I read the original article and his article. It basically titled, Awful New York Times Article Glorifies Israeli Mossad Agent Who Helped Murder Innocent, um, actually an innocent man, but actually many people. So we're going to watch that interview you did uh, with uh, James North first. In the two and a half months since Netanyahu's ultra-extremist government was sworn in, Fascist rhetoric and unrestrained settler rampages of Palestinian homes and villages are now Israel's modus operandi. The New York Times has always focused on spinning Israel to advantage. Now forced to acknowledge Israel's escalated extrajudicial killings, many of those are children by the IDF, the recent settler pogrom in Hawara, as well as Israel's demolition of Palestinian homes, the New York Times must employ new levels of journalistic gymnastics to reorganize facts and do damage control for Israel. In his recent article in Mondowis, awful New York Times article glorifies an Israeli Mossad agent who helped murder an innocent man. Why? James North talks about the New York Times' current shameful tactics to deliver a feel-good article on Israel at all costs, ethical journalism being the first. 
Joining us on Arab Talk this week is James North. He is an independent writer who has reported from Africa, Latin America, and Asia for over four decades. He is the author of Freedom Rising, a first-hand look at apartheid South Africa. He's also currently an editor at Mondawis. Welcome to Arab Talk, James. Thank you very much, Mr. Dajani, for your invitation. Delighted to be here. You regularly analyze the New York Times' coverage of Israel and Palestine to get an overview of its strategy in reporting on the burgeoning Jewish extremism since December of last year. Talk about your recent article about Ronan Bergman's profile of Mossad agent Sylvia Raphael, which you turned breathtaking in its immorality and dishonesty. Yes, let me just back up a little bit. Uh, Phil Weiss, who started Mondo Weiss 15 or so years ago, he and I have been friends for 50 years. And so when he started this site, which was originally very small, uh, he asked me to help. And I thought the best way I could help was to uh, monitor uh, the mainstream U.S. press coverage of Israel-Palestine and look for uh, areas where there was bias or dishonesty or whatever. And I have to tell you, in the 10 plus years I've been doing this, I've done dozens, maybe scores of articles or posts, I should say. And it just, the paper doesn't, it, 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 it doesn't seem to be getting any better. I mean, the Washington Post isn't quite as bad as the Times. I also look at, uh, from time to time, uh, National Public Radio, the cable stations. But, you know, the flagship of the U.S. media is still the New York Times. And right. I'm just astonished at how biased much of their coverage is. Uh, and anyone who wants to see my previous work on this can just consult MondaWeiss.net, where it's all listed. Okay. Okay, so last week I looked online to the paper and I was absolutely astonished. And keep in mind, I'm someone who has been following this closely. I was absolutely astonished by this uh, article by Ronan Bergman. Now, as everyone knows, there's been a great deal of uh, unrest, if that's the word, in, uh, well, all over Israel, Palestine, but certainly in the West Bank. There's, uh, you know, there's the pro-anti-Netanyahu uh, movement among, uh, among Jewish Israelis. Right. And, you know, there's the threat or, or or what I guess that's the word of a third intifada provoked by this extremist, frankly, fascist government that has taken power in Israel. OK, so I started reading this article by Ronan Bergman, who is a regular staff member there. And I was just, you know, I, I was almost speechless at how biased it was. The article, basically, I, I refer anybody to it. It appeared a few days ago last week, I guess. But. Uh, the article basically glorifies a Mossad woman agent who died in uh, 2005, I guess of old age, but it glorifies her work, if that's the word, with the Israeli spy agency in the 1960s and 70s. And the, the, the pretext for the article is a uh, photography exhibition that's, that's currently showing in Tel Aviv right now. Now, this woman, uh, Sylvia Raphael, masqueraded as a photographer, a news photographer, and traveled all over the Middle East and other parts of the world, you know, basically as cover for her Mossad work. Okay. So first of all, I'm wondering, why is this a news article? I mean, why not go interview some Palestinian families in the West Bank about how their uh, their children were just shot dead by Israeli soldiers? Okay. But set that aside, um, you know, you went into the article further, and there's this astonishing, many of you, you and many of your 
reader, listeners may have heard of the Lillehammer episode, when what happened was in Norway, a Mossad uh, murder team went to Norway in the 1970s and assassinated someone they thought was a leader of the Palestinian resistance who turned out to be an innocent waiter from Morocco. They got the wrong man. They murdered him. They murdered him in front of his pregnant uh, wife, as I remember. I I didn't know that, but yes. Any rate, the way this, I'm just going to read briefly from um, from the way I uh, from my from my post here. The, the post basically says, you know, Bergman had to include this fact as he's as he's trying to uh, do this worshipful piece. But the way he describes it, he says Raphael's identity became known in the 1970s after she was arrested as a member of a Mossad team that had planned to kill another top Palestinian militant in Norway, but shot the wrong man. Well, let's start with that. Shot the wrong man. I mean, that leaves the impression that maybe he was wounded and survived. He wasn't shot. The way I put it is the Mossad team didn't just shoot the wrong man. They murdered him in what became known as the Lillehammer Affair. That's the town in Norway where this took place. The victim was an innocent Morocco-born waiter named Ahmed Bouchiki. But Bergman in the article didn't even have the decency to tell us his name. He couldn't even mention his name. He was arrested in Norway I'm sorry, she was arrested in Norway, uh, along with others in the assassination team, convicted of murder, sentenced to five and a half years in prison and released after serving 15 months. Now, surely this is relevant information that New York Times readers would want to know. Okay, Uh, but instead of that, instead of those kind of details, let me just read a couple of quotes. Bergman goes to old time Mossad people back from that era uh, Sylvia was someone special, said Moto Kefir, who was serving as the commander of Mossad's clandestine operations academy at the time. Another person, uh, the curators of this photography exhibition, Sylvia's story fascinated me. She was a woman who went against conventions at a very young age, left her comfort zone, and agreed to sacrifice so much. I mean, agreed to sacrifice so much, they just killed an innocent man. I mean, surely this should have been in, 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 more relevant. I have to admit, I was nearly speechless when I saw this. And again, I'll remind you that I've been doing this. I've been covering this kind of thing for years. Well, well, here's the problem. I mean, you know these facts. I know these facts. Most people don't know these facts. I mean, they're, here they are glorifying an, ass, an assassin, in fact. Yes. I mean, that's who they yes. are glorifying and not mentioning the name of, his, of her victims. It's over. Right. Am I correct in restating your theory as the New York Times journalist cover covering Israel and Palestine being increasingly pressed to report through a filter of appeasement to the to the pro-Israel leadership. Uh, give them something they can feel good about, regardless of, of how the facts are, are uh, tortured. Yes, that's actually a very good summary. See, most important to me in this post was to actually state what happened to show how the Times covered it and to give, uh, you know, Mondo Weiss readers some indication of what really was going on here and how the story was covered up. That was my main job. Having said that, though, I started to wonder how on earth could this have possibly happened that, you know, the New York Times is notorious for having levels of editors. One editor looks at it and then there's someone above them and someone above them. So this must have been approved by a whole range of people. Okay, how did this make its way into the paper in this biased form? And the conclusion, the tentative conclusion, I should say, which is, as you summarized it, is basically that the news from Israel, the New York Times has millions of readers. Some of these readers are pro-Israel. 
Okay, many of them are changing. If you read the, you know, the Times does allow on some of its uh, opinion pieces, it does allow comment from readers, and right. many, many readers, very encouraging. Many, many readers are starting to question uh, not just the Times's coverage, but what's actually going on there. You know, Netanyahu has been a disaster for Israel public relations, particularly this last government. Okay, but at the same time, there are still many people there who. Um, Many read at times readers who are pro-Israel, and they're disturbed by this news. They're disturbed by the news that Israel is becoming even more uh, fascistic and less democratic, although many of us knew it was never fully democratic. And they're also disturbed at these pogroms that are taking place in occupied West Bank, Palestine. They're disturbed I want to get to that later on, but with this in mind, I'd like to go back to the end of 2022. Uh, your article entitled, With Shocking Bias, uh, New York Times Treats Deadliest Year Since uh, 2005 as a Palestinian Numbers Game. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, again, th again, this is something the New York Times has to report on, but you made a stark comparison between how the Washington Post configured the article around facts, whereas the New York Times did not. How did it present the information? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the Times is, you know, they, they, they do feel they have to present the information, but they disguise it in such a way so that it doesn't seem to be as, as negative. And what I, again, what I do there is I use the Washington Post and other mainstream media. See, first of all, sometimes they're all wrong. They all get it badly. But where there's a case where the Post is better, which does happen sometimes, I basically um, made that comparison. National Public Radio, I should add, also is abysmal. Its coverage is terrible of Israel-Palestine. It really is. I mean, that's shocking because you would think yeah. it's a more high-level, sophisticated, you know, I mean, but it's not. It's not good. So, yeah, basically, uh, you know, there, there are various techniques that the time uses. And again, I'm not even, I'm not going to say this is a conspiracy. I'm not going to say they're consciously doing this. But for instance. But there is a pattern. I mean, there is a pattern. There is definitely a pattern. Unquestionably, I mean, they again, I've done this. They decontextualize the facts and understand uh, understate them by inserting them in a side story. Uh, there are we talk about the tactics uh, that the New York Times repeatedly uses. One of which is the both sides of the argument. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. For yeah. example, in your article, the New York Times gives Israel's home demolitions the both sides uh, right. treatment. I don't know if you remember. This is uh, talking about Isabel. Uh, uh, Kirshner's article, you know. Yeah, no, that was another appalling article. Now, not as bad as the one about this Mossad agent, but no, basically, no, what they did there was they said Israel destroys the homes of family members of people who are guilty, of, who, they, who they say are guilty of, of, of attacks. There's no due process, nothing. Then they say Israel does this. Then they say critics say this is bad. And you had to get down to, I don't remember which paragraph. I count paragraphs, you know. I think I remind you of the paragraph. I think in this article, only at the end of the article, paragraph 21, does she state that the Fourth Geneva Convention yes, uh, unequivocally yes. states that no protected person, in this case, meaning right. residents of an occupied territory, territory, may be punished for offenses they have exactly. not personally committed. So they, they go on and they go on and then they leave that to the Last, right. you know, pretty much towards right. the end to say, oh, oh yeah, by the exactly. way, what Israel was doing is illegal according to international right. law. No, it's the equivalent, of, I guess, you know, not to, not to make joke about this because this is serious business, but, you know, Mr. Jones says the world is flat. Mr. Smith says the world is round. And by paragraph 17, you learn that 18 million scientists say the world is round. 
Okay. Now, obviously, no one's going to be taken in by that. But when you got you got a reader sitting on a on a on a, on a subway train in New York reading the paper, they're not going to go all the way down to paragraph twenty six every time, and it's going to leave the impression that you know on the one side, on the other side, what can you do? And the Times does use many many techniques like that. I uh, sorry for inter interrupting you earlier, but you started talking about the pogroms, and then because I wanted to move on to this, which is yes, the other article. Yeah. Uh, you talk about uh, the article is how the New York Times buries Israel military complicity in the West Bank yes. pogrom. Yes, that was and also shocking, and that's in your paragraph uh, twenty-six. Uh, explain how shocking. how do they bury the story here? That was shocking. You know, the pogroms that occurred was it two weeks ago now, whenever it was. And so, yeah, there was a report what happened. The Israelis did this and the Palestinians did this. And then only at the very end, you, you know, the, the, you, you, people who follow your program will know what really was going on here. But way down in the end of this to the middle of the story, it says that, you know, uh, when asked when the Israeli military spokesmen were asked why they stood aside and do, didn't do anything, they said we made a mistake. Well, that's the first paragraph. You know, if you have the authorities, Israeli is required to maintain order in these occupied territories. That's international law. And when they didn't do that and they stood aside, then, of course, this this is news. But again, you're, the, the, the New Yorker sitting on his subway train. He's reading down. He doesn't have time to get to that. He turns the page. And so he doesn't have any idea or she doesn't have any idea what actually happened. Exactly. Two weeks ago, the chairperson of the board of uh, Beth Salem, we've had her on the show, Orly Noy, uh, yeah. she recently was talking about the program and, and she said it's, it's a well-known fact that the IDF serves as cover for the settlers, yet the New York Times often is the last one to report on things that are already in Israeli media, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And uh, let me just make a side point about Beit Selim, which is, as you know, you and your viewers know, it's an Israeli human right, rights organization, right. both Israelis of Palestinian origin, but it's basically Jewish Israelis and, and some very brave and outstanding people. And the fact is, the New York Times almost never consults them. Almost never. If you do a search through the New York Times uh, uh, past, you know, very rarely will they quote Beit Selim. So I'm, who I'm, are their who are their sources in that case? Well, they don't quote when the apartheid reports came out from both Amnesty International and uh, Human Rights Watch. One of them, I can't remember which, they didn't report it at all. And the other one, they barely reported it. So your average New York Times reader has no idea that the leading human rights organizations in the world have said that Israel-Palestine is a system of apartheid. They've used that word. They've said it. You, your viewers know it. I know it. But your average New York Times reader has not, it's not, they haven't seen it. On the New York Times website, I mean, this, under the missions and values page, the first uh, is value, and I'm quoting here, is independence, and it states that over 100 years ago, the Times pledged to give the news impartially, uh, impartially with, uh, without fear or favor, regardless of party, sect, or interest involved. That commitment remains true today. Uh, we follow the truth wherever it leads. Is it time for them to rewrite their values? Well, of course it is. And, you know, I mean, some people get so disturbed at the New York Times and say, I'm going to boycott it. Well, I'm not like that. First of all, you want to keep track of what these people are saying. But second of all, in other areas, the Times has some outstanding reporting. 
you know, it, when it's not Israel, Palestine, they do some very good work. And I'm not going to miss that. Of course, I'm going to continue. Fun. I don't know what the solution is. I mean, the solution, well, I do know the solution is to continue people like us to continue pointing out this bias, to continue reaching as large an audience as possible. I mean, you and I would not be having this conversation 20 or 30 years ago simply because we didn't have the technology to do it. You know, That's we right. or, or the resources. Or the resources, and we wouldn't be able to reach, you know, I mean, Mondo Weiss reaches thousands upon thousands of people every day. It started with one man who thought that, the, you know, the world needed to know a little bit more about Israel-Palestine. But at any rate, so, no, the Times is, I mean, I mean, it's very disappointing. And I do think, too, that, you know, my understanding is there are levels of editors there. And the fact is that even when the reporters on the scene, may, I don't know any of these people firsthand, but even on the scene, they may may or may not want to, you know, be more truthful in their report, but an editor above them will tone it down and the person above them will tone it down. Well, do you think they're paying attention to your findings, to, to your articles, to your reports? I mean, doesn't this consistent fact sidestepping harm the journalistic reputation of, of this uh, establishment oh. in the long run. Oh, we know they pay attention to us because we hear through the grapevine and through, you know, we have sources in Israel, Palestine. We know they pay attention, but, you know, so far we're Mondo Weiss. Uh, you know, we don't have the kind of power and reach yet, although, you know, the, the site is growing. And mind you, there are other sites that do the same type of work. We're not the only ones. I'm not trying to say that. But, you know, I have... Uh, Will they be affected by shame? Will they be, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's 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 really hard to tell. But all I can say is just we're going to keep doing what we're doing. We're going to keep reading their articles. And, the, you know, another another point I could make is, you know, the Israeli uh, newspaper Haaretz. Right. Uh, I don't agree with everything that's in it by any means. But, I mean, if you really want to know a lot of what the Times is missing, I, just, I have a subscription to it, an online subscription. I, I read what they have to say. They have people, you know, the great Edward Said made this point like a few years before he passed on. He basically said a reporter from Israel came to talk to him from Haaretz. Uh, this reporter sat down, listened politely to what he said, didn't try and uh, ask nasty questions, and then wrote an article that appeared in Haaretz eventually, and basically reflected fairly what Professor Said had to say about Israel-Palestine. And, and he said, look, that was Israel. You would never see that in a mainstream American publication. And he's right, unfortunately. What about also in the, uh, I guess, in opinion pieces and editorials and, and, and commentary, uh, you find in Haaretz, uh, a f freedom to criticize the current Israeli government, but there is a restriction in a way here until Ben Gavir and, and his uh, you know uh, supporters came into power. I mean, there is an imbalance in the way uh, I, I feel how journalists kind of step back from criticizing the Israeli government versus oh. Israeli journalists who actually do that oh, no, on a daily basis, like Amira Haas and others. Yes. Oh, you're absolutely right. Amira Haas would never be able, you know, this is a woman who lived in Gaza for years, who wrote an excellent book about it, who travels to the West Bank, to the occupied West. She would never get a job. <laughs> she would never be able to work for the New York Times. Or Gideon Levy. That's she's, the a daughter of she's a daughter of Holocaust survivors. Yeah. 
I mean, come on, you know, she's an Israeli. I mean, you know, no, no, she wouldn't. But again, you're, you know, you know about her. I know about her. I looked into it and I, you know, actually bought her book when I was in Jerusalem, you know, in English, of course, because I don't read Hebrew or Arabic, unfortunately. But at any rate, uh, you know, but your average person in the United States, uh, even people who follow foreign, they don't know who she is. They have no idea. And, you know, again, that's why Manda Weiss programs like your, you know, we're continuing. Having said that, I mean, I, I know I've sounded very pessimistic here, but having said that, the level of understanding in the last 20 years or so about Israel-Palestine in the United States, it started from a very low level, but it's continuing to improve. I see it all the time. And again, as I said a little earlier when I was talking to you, uh, if you look at some of the articles, more the opinion pieces where they allow uh, readers to chime in, I mean, there are readers who sound like they watch your program all the time. I mean, because they're up to date on what's really happening. They're critical and so on. And that you wouldn't have seen, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the Six-Day War. I mean, I was a teenager at the time, but I'm old enough to remember how how biased the coverage was there and how in this country there, it was totally one-sided what was happening. And, you know, we're past that, thankfully. We're, we're well past that. But there's still a long ways to go. There is still a long ways to go, uh, maybe a glimmer of hope, which I'll be talking about this later on, about the new Gallup poll, which uh, shows a shift, a major shift uh, in uh, towards, uh, in the, at least amongst Democrats, uh, towards Palestinians. Yes. And, and there is also a shift with, uh, especially the millennials and the young people, when it comes to reporting that they actually don't, I mean, many of them don't... Uh, watch television like CNN and other stations right. so they they go to the internet and they and they they get their reports from Monda Weiss and, and other progressive publications yes. yes no you're absolutely right no things are moving in the right direction I mean it's you know having said that I mean I don't live in Gaza I don't live in uh, occupied West Bank I mean these people continue to suffer and get killed it's 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 just outrageous and and what's happening to them is very poorly reported and again in the mainstream US media and I haven't even mentioned you know the cable cable news here I mean first of all they don't cover this at all hardly occasionally CNN will have a fairly decent report but they don't cover it at all uh, it's just talking heads talking about U.S. politics. Well, get some talking heads on there, you know, from Palestine talking about what's going on there. There's certainly plenty of articulate Palestinians who they could who they could put on their uh, Nura Erakat, people like that. Why, isn't, why aren't they on TV more often? I mean, really. Well, uh, James North, uh, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Well, thank you for your invitation, and I'll, anytime you want, I'll come back, and uh, I wish I could stop doing these. I wish I could do articles that said, congratulations to the New York Times for, occasionally we do, once in a while when they get it right, we give credit where due, absolutely, because we want to encourage them. But uh, but this, again, this latest uh, glorifying this, uh, this Mossad agent who actually helped murder an innocent man, uh, by talking about her photography expert, I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, it's shocking, really. I was shocked. Well, thank you again, and uh, I look forward to to reading your next article. Thank you, thank you. That's the voice in the face of James North, the independent writer and editor at Mondowis, on his latest article in Mondowis, talking about the awful New York Times article and how it glorified an Israeli Mossad agent. Just for, I mean, it was talked about in the interview, but I read the New York Times article. It was this complete glorification and celebration of this woman 
who was an Israeli Mossad agent uh, posing as a photographer and glorifying what a great photographer she was when she was actually spying uh, for the Israeli government in Jordan, in Egypt, and throughout the Middle East. Not only this, Jess, but I mean, this is the irony of all ironies. <clears throat> she was involved in the assassination of an innocent man. They mistook him for a Palestinian, a Moroccan waiter. He got right. assassinated in front of his pregnant wife. And so what the article talks about, talks about her photos. Who gives a damn about her photos when she served five years in jail until the Israeli government negotiated with the Norwegian government to get her out? She's a murderer, you know, and, and all, all that they can talk about is, you know, the photos she, she took while she was... Uh, you know, on different, on different assassination missions. It's well, crazy. You know, it is, Jamal, and it's part of the whitewashing that we've spoken about that the Israeli government, the apartheid regime has been engaged with for a very long time. They've done greenwashing, they've done pinkwashing, and this is classic whitewashing, taking uh, a convicted murderer, essentially, and uh, Israeli Mossad agent, and trying to elevate and glorify some really, some really heinous things that she did, and, and uh, without any context, really, in the New York Times article about uh, the the kind of, you know, kind of grotesque things that she did while she was a Mossad agent. Moving on to our three uh, news stories, we have a lot more, but we can only handle three uh, with this limited time. Just so after a, de a decade or more in which Democrats have shown increasingly affinity towards Palestinians, so the numbers here, their sympathies in the Middle East now lie more with the Palestinians than the Israelis for the very first time. 49% uh, of um, the polls came back in favor of Palestinians and 38 versus 38 to Israel. That's, remar that's remarkable, Jamal. So th this is not only this is remarkable, but this is a shift of 11 percentage uh, point, uh, points from last year. So in 12 months, 11 uh, points uh, have shifted. Uh, of course, uh, no change with the Republicans. So I think uh, Palestinians are not popular with the Republicans. I don't know why. I mean, uh, <laughs> we exist. <laughs> I, 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 I think that's an uh, uh, interesting question about Republicans, which we'll get to in a second. But in relation to the specific issue of Democrats, for example, Jamal, it's rather striking. And we're looking at Democrats in general, which are the majority of, uh, you know, of Americans, which uh, also includes both the progress, this, these results include the progressive elements of the Democratic Party and the less progressive aspects of the de Democratic Party. And it highlights something you and I spoke about last week when we spoke about Chuck Schumer uh, kissing up and fawning all over uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in his photo op with him last week, it just goes to show you the complete disconnection that politicians have with everyday Democrats who clearly have an idea of where justice is in relation to the question of Palestine. So the question is, uh, is the Democratic leadership in line with this poll? No. Absolutely. I mean, when, 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 when they look at this poll, and this is a very credible poll, you know, this is the Gallup poll. It's right. uh, one of the best in, uh, in this country. And they say, hey, how come Chuck Schumer takes a trip 
and brings with him a bunch of congressmen and congresswomen and senators to Israel to meet with Benjamin Netanyahu when everyone is shunning this apartheid state. And also, does it reflect on the votes that we have in Congress? Well, I'll give you a good example of that, Jamal, which is kind of interesting to me. One of the most progressive people in Congress on the surface is Katie Porter. She's a congresswoman from Southern California. That's right. She's, she's announced that she's going to be running for the Senate seat that Dianne Feinstein is going to be relinquishing coming up in 2024. Uh, hands down, considered among the most progressive uh, people in the Democratic Party. What did she do two weeks ago? She took a junket trip to the apartheid state. She met with Benjamin Netanyahu. She said, I had a great, basically I had a great meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu. And he had a lot of important thing and good things to say. So your question as to whether or not the poll is having any impact on democratic leadership? The answer is unequivocally not. There's no well, impact. So, so, how do you, so how do you bridge this gap when you have well, now the poll reflects one thing? Well, I think and then and then yeah, what we see happen. in Congress, with the exception of the few, even though that this is this has been increasing, like the Squad and other progressive Democrats, are not viewing Israel as they used to before. Well, I think two things, Jamal. One is that we have to remember, and you, you and I have said this multiple times: it's a marathon, not a sprint. And as part of the marathon, you have a general change in the grassroots of the Democratic Party. It's going to take time before that uh, bubbles up into who runs for Congress and Senate and who gets elected. Um, I think that it's just going to take time. But I expect, especially given what's happening in the apartheid regime right now, given what's happening with like comments from Smotrich and other members of the Knesset, given that uh, you see the entire world community condemning the apartheid state and their aggressions right now, uh, we're seeing some significant movement. Whether or not Chuck Schumer, uh, you know, Katie Porter, who's allegedly progressive, uh, it, will it affect them? I don't see it happening right away, certainly in, not in the next couple of election cycles. I mean, we're fighting to keep people like uh, AOC uh, and other progressive Democrats kind of uh, viable and hoping that they get elected. And these are individuals like Ilhan Omar. Uh, well, here's the caveat, because you mentioned fighting to keep these people getting elected and whatever. But what I see that's probably very, very interesting that just APEC spends hundreds of millions of dollars on Hasbara. You know, that's propaganda, Israeli uh, propaganda in this country. And the Palestinians have zero budget. They don't even have a lobby. So when you have results like this, it makes you think maybe this is the time for Palestinian Americans to organize and tell their story or tell their side of, of their story if, since there is now finally a shift in public opinion. I think that's a really good point. And I think the combination of, of having our own political action committee in conjunction with working hard to change even more minds in the Democratic Party, because 49% is good, 
But it needs to be 70, 75, 80, and 90 percent. Well, the other thing I forgot to mention is that the, this comes from uh, the big increase comes from the millennials, and that tells you something. That's the generational shift that I'm talking about because younger and younger people do get it. And this helps explain the Republican phenomenon, Jamal, because if you look at the average age of Republicans, you know, Republican voters, it's, you know, late 50s, early 60s and beyond. So the age of an average Republican is probably, you know, 20 to 30 to 40 years older than the average age of Democrats. So you see a real generational split, which in part explains the uh, the Gallup poll results. I, I'm Even though I'm encouraged, I see it as only a step, Jamal, in a longer generational struggle to really show that it's not in the U.S. interests to keep supporting a rogue apartheid oppressive regime like Israel. And, you know, it kind of relates to our next statement, our next, uh, our next uh, topic, Jamal, because what, what's happening? You have, we talked about this last week, right? Because you have China who's now brokering deals between Saudi Arabia and Iran and being a big player in the Middle East. It, in some ways, the United States is falling by the wayside in terms of its you know, international geopolitical foreign policy by continuing to support this apartheid regime. So step by step. So we should probably have started with this, but I wanted to keep it to last. Today is the 20th year or 20th anniversary for the invasion of Iraq. Unbelievable. And we'll talk, I mean, it's kind of uh, mind boggling that 20 years have passed by. A couple of days ago, or, or, or specifically on March 17, uh, the ICC issued warrants of arrest for two individuals. I, I woke up and I saw the headlines and I was hoping to see the name of Benjamin Netanyahu and Ben Gavir and others. But it was, you know, still justifiably so, may, is Vladimir Putin and Maria Lvova Bilova, which is, uh, anyway, she's um, uh, the minister, I think the, she's president of the Russian, well, Putin is, a, is the president of the Russian Federation, and 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 she is, uh, I guess, in the ministry in charge of children, something she's like that. She's the ministry of children, yeah. Yes. So they have now two arrest warrants for them. Uh, and the arrest warrants uh, say that uh, they are responsible for the war crime of unlawful deportation of population of children, they, specifically an unlawful tra- transfer of population uh, from occupied areas of Ukraine. Where, where, where else that, does this happen, the un- unlawful transfer of population? So, Jamal, let me, let me ask you a question. What if why not just switch the wording around from Ukraine to Palestine and the unlawful transfer of people, unlawful transfer of children from an occupied area to another? It's it's what's been happening in Palestine since 1948. And yet, yeah, of course, you we understand that Vladimir Putin and uh, Lvova Belova need to be held accountable, be, you know, in front of the world uh, ICC. 
but uh, it talks about the hypocrisy of the ICC, the political motivation of the ICC, and their lack of willingness to move on the issue of, you know, what's happening. I mean, it, not only this, but I mean, how can you trust the ICC? I mean, in, in, in a way, I mean, this is good. They want to take action, but right. then they bypass all these other a dozen periods. or so people who right. committed horrendous crimes, like when you talk about transfer of population, which is a violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention, Israel consistently transfers settlers into occupied Palestinian territory, demolishes Palestinian homes, evicts them from their homes. Some of them are evicted from entire Palestine, sent to Jordan or Lebanon or, or, or elsewhere. And that is not a violation for someone to be held responsible. And then the other thing is, because we want to talk about the 20th anniversary of the war on Iraq uh, and the uh, and the ideologues, uh, the neoconservatives who were in power in 2003, who decided to to start an invasion of a uh, of a country, basically on false pretexts of uh, that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction, and before that, trying to say that Saddam Hussein was responsible, somehow responsible for 9-11, and uh, worked with bin Laden on 9-11. And his uh, surrogates like Tony Blair in, right. in the UK and others, they get to walk free, no arrest warrant, no, no one is holding them responsible. You know, over five... And this is a low number, Jess. Over half a million Iraqis have died because right. of this lie when we saw the former Secretary of State uh, Colin Powell go going in front of the entire world at the United Nations Security Council showing forged or fake photos of trains, uh, train carts, and talking about yellow cake and how Saddam moves his the nuclear material around. And then you have investigators who went there shortly thereafter and said, this is nonsense. I remember right? th I remember and, that vividly. Yes, and, and, and then they continued, they went on uh, with the war that Iraq is still suffering from up till today. And name me one person who was served a warrant from the ICC because of this? Well, that, that's that's easy to answer, Jamal. The answer is zero. But then I think the real fundamental question is we look on 20 years on from the invasion and destruction of Iraq. Let me ask a very kind of pointed question. Is Iraq and are Iraqis better off today in any appreciable way than they were 20 years ago? And then the follow-up question Given the geopolitical consequences of where we are in the world today, 20 years on, is the world in a better, more stable place after the invasion and destruction of Iraq? I mean, I, I know you and I have talked about this at length, but you have even American servicemen and women who've come out in the last week since the 20th anniversary of this uh, devastation in Iraq and have said this was wrong. This was, you know, illegal. This There was no basis for it. And you have to look at what's happening in Iraq right now, Jamal. It's still in a chaotic situation. The sphere of influence, who, who has the greatest influence in Iraq right now? It's not the United States. It's not Europe. It's not China. It's Iran. 
So if you ask the question, is Iraq and are Iraqis better off now, 20 years after? Is the world better off now because of the invasion in Iraq? I dare say no. No. And, 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 and if you look at all the reasons, like I said, uh, September 11, Iraq had nothing to do with September 11, weapons of mass destruction. And then I've read several of these uh, books and writings about the hidden reason is to create a Pax Israeliana, you know, uh, in the Middle East and uh, make Iraq prosper and all these things. Uh, that Such were, a joke. Was, were supposed to happen in the Middle East. And we've seen what this, this one thing led to another, the destruction of Iraq and then Syria and the, the so-called Arab Spring. And none of the, the things that they laid out to the Middle East that's going to be one happy democratic, uh, uh, you know, area or region. And it, the opposite happened in, in, in fact. And last but not least, we should not ignore, which is very important, how many Americans lost their lives. Americans who were sent to Iraq, how many of them are still suffering from PSD, uh, from mental issues? And uh, and injuries and so forth. I mean, well, I, I can, who's, I can, who's responsible for that? Well, you know, five thousand servicemen and women died in Iraq alone, and some estimates say forty to fifty thousand were injured and continued to suffer from the ill effects, uh, both psychiatric, mental health, and physical effects of that war. It's been devastating to 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 the you know, survivors on both sides. I mean, of course, 500,000 Iraqis, how many Iraqi children died, you know? And then you look at the impact on the on the people who served. I mean, who, who, well, this is the most difficult question, Jamal. It's like, ultimately, who benefited? Who really benefited? Did anybody really, I mean, this was a Cheney Bush kind of Tony Blair concoction with the idea that, you know, to redraw the political and economic maps of the of the Middle East. But did anybody really benefit from this? Weapon, weapon manufacturers. Yes. Well, let me put it to you this way. Do you think the apartheid regime, do you think the Israeli uh, uh, benefited from the destabilization in the region in any way? Well, that's, that's actually... Uh, uh, their plan always be it Iraq and or move on to Iran, which we don't have the time to talk about. We've talked about Iran several times, but again, as you started earlier, uh, now we see uh, the big slap in the face and the shock for uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and uh, actually the Biden administration to wake up and see that China, out of all countries, has uh, brokered a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I thought Saudi Arabia were our allies, just what happened? Well, what happened? What and, happened to uh, MBS? What hap well, MBS, you know, after a $166 billion windfall, you know, for Aramco and uh, is completely rehabilitated now, Jamal. He's He's a world leader, uh, a kind of, you know, considered and welcomed uh, globally now, except, you know, maybe the United States. But it was a slap in the face to the uh, to Benjamin Netanyahu, slap in the 
in the face to Biden. But I would say the biggest slap in the face is to the U.S. Uh, Department of State. Tony Blinken has been a disaster, Jamal. He came back from his visit with Benjamin Netanyahu and was completely you know, um, sucking up to Benjamin Netanyahu and basically telling Palestinians to get on board with security agreements after a village was called to be completely wiped off the map and after, you know, 50 Palestinians had been murdered since the beginning of the year. So I think this 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 time right now, thinking about Iraq, thinking about what China's doing in you know, Saudi Arabia and Iran, thinking about what China's doing today, Jamal, trying to broker a deal between Russia and Ukraine, which they very well may do, completely undermines any kind of U.S. authority. Because we are going to support this oppressive apartheid regime at all costs, at all costs, and it's costing dearly. Well, you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we'll speak to you next week. We'll see you next week.